Hi, I'm Mahar, and the person I would like to play my games would be Justin Trudeau, but only if he's wearing a beard. Only bearded Justin Trudeau. <laughs> uh, my name is Jared, and I make games exclusively for Elijah Wood. I'm Fiona Maeve-Geist, and if Parker Posey were aware of my RPG career, I would quit to go be her assistant. Oh my god, we, the three of us all need therapy. Yeah, that's why I'm looking <laughs> for a job ans- where I could afford it. The, these answers say far more than we want to reveal to each other. All right, so here we are. Um, last time we were on session zero, which was when we were talking about the preface of this book, and we basically went over a few rules on how we're going to discuss it. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate here that we're not out to destroy the Forge per se. I mean, we all have opinions on that institution, on that online platform for what it was, but this is not about basically just punching down. What we're looking at, rather, is how it's being academically handled in a book, because this is clearly an uh, an instance of when we are looking at formal attempts, not even formal attempts, formal actions to institutionalize or remember a community that we have heard of, had been part of, and is now going to continue influencing our work. And, you know, and basically this is part of the bigger, of a bigger conversation of where does the academe uh, and how does the academe look at an industry or a hobby or even an art form of creating games. So... Just with that in mind, we're now entering chapter one. I wanted to ask you to, before we even begin, uh, the chapter is called Before the Forge, The Discourse of RPGs, 1974 to 2000. Were either of you playing games already at this point in time? Yes. Um, let me think. If we take 2000 as the back end, I had probably played. No, no, the answer is no. I, Wait, um, so are you a 21st century gamer exclusively, Jared? That's me. 21st century man. Between Gen the three Z of us, gamer. there's, there's <laughs> one Zoomer. Like, you know, Jared started playing games late. Mahar understands hip things. And I listen to music that sounds like it's just been auto-tuned all the time. And I'm like, this is very pleasant. Okay, I think you need to remember that for the longest time, I was in a Broadway bubble. So maybe not quite that hip. I mean, young people seem to like musicals. I don't understand them. They're just pornography for straight people. Um, Cats was great. Cats was great. Cats was among the best musicals ever. <laughs> oh, I hate you both. <laughs> I made a I made a jellical cat Monster Heart skin, and I hope someday someone uses that skin and just really fucks up a game of Monster Hearts. In a way that's protected for everyone. It's you're horrible. I mean, I bought it, but you're horrible. <laughs> so, Fiona, um, when did you start playing games? Like, what was 1974, 2000 for you in terms of a gaming landscape? Well, I'm just gonna say you shouldn't ask a woman's age, but I was not alive in 1974. Um, I didn't ask you for it. I was asking what the landscape, not your age. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, I think my own joke is very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so look, what was the gaming landscape like in 1974 in my knowledge or in like the book's knowledge? In your knowledge or experience. 
um, the year 2000, like, I think 3E came out, and I was super stoked about it because my friends were going to play D&D again after I forced them to play 2E, which is fucking terrible. And basically, once we discovered Baldur's Gate, we stopped doing that. You know what? I think I might actually be the oldest of the three of us because I remember gaming in 1989 to 1990 when I was a really young kid. Wow. Yeah. I mean, mean, it's it it was basically the result of having a mom who basically told his brothers her, uh, you know, telling her kid and his brothers, I am not going to have more than one person look after you. So you include your younger brother in your games. Okay, and I was begrudgingly allowed to join. (laughs) My parents became susceptible to the satanic panic because I was into role-playing games right around the time that, like, Toys R Us and normal places stocked Vampire the Jihad, a game in which you can just straight out the box play a cocaine dealer with an Uzi and shoot people in the face. Okay, so, like, good grief. Um, but right. that also was the first diversity in games in some people's recollection. So, you know. Okay. Discourse in games that. is endless. <laughs> yeah, I also remember the Satanic Panic somewhat, and it's kind of mentioned in this chapter. So, all right, let's do an overview of this chapter. I read it feeling like this is the chapter to tell all the noobs and all the members of the academe. This is what RPGs are like before we get to the really important part of talking about my topic. You know what I mean? It's very much background of the study dissertation shit. Yeah, I mean, like, this reads a lot like, you know, an abstract in some ways that's very long for, like, what is your topic of study? But, like, it also has really specific focuses that, like, don't really jive with my experience of game playing or, like, reading um but that's maybe jumping ahead of myself and you know as this says on page one of the book participants in online conversations about rpgs uh resort to the motif of talking past each other with some frequency which i did the air quotes for which i realized doesn't come out in my voice so basically yeah i mean i was reading through this and i was thinking okay So the first few parts are really talking about from Dungeons and Dragons, of course, you can't really talk about RPGs without acknowledging that elephant in the room. It's not even an elephant, it's just you have to deal with it, right? And then goes on to talking about Vampire the Masquerade and, you know, basically from what is D&D to what's not D&D and then talking about narrative games and what narrative games were like. Until finally, after all of this stuff that I'm assuming the average RPG player would know about or at least cares about, you finally get into this notion of RPG theory on the internet. And... You also get into system matters. Oh god, we're not oh god. That's gonna um... be episode one point five, just and that's going to be episode Jared's blood curdling dreams. <laughs> it's gonna be episode one point, Jared. Um <laughs> Jared will be a unit of measure in our timeline based on on that very line. So let's go to this. Let's go to this uh, part. RPG theory on the internet. Okay, here. I just remembered Look, looking I just at want it. To point like, out that we, we. I'm sorry. I can't let us skip role playing art or murder on page nine. Oh god. Oh god. Do you want to because, talk about role playing art or murder? Yeah, so. I mean, like. I don't know, like, 
because it actually feels important to me to moving into Forge stuff because of a number of the Forge claims that people make about games that, like, the kind of question about, like, who plays RPGs and are these people okay is kind of interesting. And, you know, I've read Laycock, um, who has the best last name and a really good book, actually, um, that has a really mm-hmm. good and interesting history of the era in which D&D was basically chainmail, and actually there's a lot of war games that had acting in them. But, um, you know, I, I think that, like, look, let's get to the nerd shaming here. Um, like, when it says, it is clear to the overwhelming majority of participants in our culture that role-playing games are not an art form, the propaganda of role-players notwithstanding. Um, and also we talk about adolescent power fantasies. Um, <laughs> oh my god. I love wait, this sorry, con- I, I found it, um, sorry. She regards role-playing as involving the wish-fulfillment fantasies of players, a daydream-like gratification of, quote, the egoistic cravings of ambition or thirst for power, or the erotic desire of the player, which is also a Freudian analysis of games. And, you know, I mean, I I just kind of want to look at that section and just unpack some of the stuff about sex and violence in games, because, like... Well, I'm going to be very blunt. I think that's a very colonial slash imperial slash white way of looking at games mm. talking about sex and violence or um clarify no, no. i mean the whole notion that it's about it's a power fantasy of oh, conquering okay. it's basically conquering i mean sex or violence it's basically the use of force to for to, towards one's pleasure that is a highly imperial way of thinking yeah, which is why i thought it was interesting the one person that cited has this observation that players worry about if people think that they're casual about murder but within the game are very casual about murder which you know is at least interesting because right like the forge makes claims at times in some of its more extreme forms right being kind about like mental health and players where yeah a couple of arguments boil down to like playing vampire the masquerade gives you brain damage and, like, you know, I, I want to start about, like, man, dubious claims about games and game players is, like, such a fucking fascinating field. <laughs> I'm just, oh, God, I was just thinking of something right now. And, you know, trying to be kind, don't bring it up. <laughs> I just Trying to be thought... kind, like, I want to talk about academics punching down at nerds and say that, like, look... This book also punches down at nerds. Like, it definitely goes with the emphasizing, like, weird otherized people, like, narrative that, I don't know, I'm not doing a great job of disproving. Um, Okay, how about this? How about this? I think it might be safer to say that without meaning to, perhaps, trying to be kind, the author here is in a rather hypocritical state. Because... He is citing he is citing works which punch down on a group of people that he may that he might consider himself to be a part of, and he might secretly also be punching down on them, which begs the question like if he's doing that, does he consider himself as someone who's not part of that initial community because of membership in something like the forge yeah, there's kind of a a transcendent assumption i think that you're pointing to here you know like this idea that you're such a poet um, you make me sound so much better than i actually meant (laughs) (laughs) yeah this idea that like taking an academic bent to it 
somehow entitles you to um, the kind of punching down you're pointing at. Because I do think it's there. It's there. It is there. I mean, it's good good on Fiona for calling that out, actually. Mm. Yeah. But it's... It's because basically what this this part it's it I I honestly avoided reading much of it for the simple reason that it's just so much valued judgments of what RPGs are without actually for lack of a better word I guess I guess it does do that I mean I'm not again maybe I'm not being so fair but I'm just reading it looking at like again like any academic text it is selective in its evidence. Uh, by virtue of the structure, it's not like you can put in. Ev- I mean, what the, the the this this chapter of like what RPGs like for nineteen seventy four to two thousand. It's you know that that's a that can be its own text. Yeah, that can be its it own, several texts. In it's, fact, it's yeah, its own textbook. And trying to condense that in like you know as the opening part of another chapter to one's own thesis is. You know, structurally, you're not going to be able to represent the entire thing. But at the same time, I kind of feel like you, you know, you you dump a lot of your own bias as a result because you are selecting. Yeah, there's a lot of but you want. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of like priming the pump here. You know what I mean? It's it's very setting the discursive stage for the for the later sort of explication of forge theory to sit very comfortably in it, I think, which, you know, like that's to some degree what it's meant to do, but it feels, it feels kind of shifty about it. (laughs) If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Like there's kind of a thing where there's like predecessor arguments in like early sort of zine culture-y things that are trying to do academic analysis in scene, which feels like the thing that I would drill down on, right? Trying to be kind, but also try to be proactive. I feel like there's maybe a more provocative discussion to talk about like the attempts to do theory within games and the almost universally negative reading of game players within mainstream media and also within like, um, you know, academic analysis. Cause like philosophy talks a lot about games. Ludology is an actual form of fucking inquiry you know, Swinga, I can't pronounce his name for shit, but, like, his books are pretty influential, but, like, there's only a couple of things written about RPGs. A lot of them are sociology, and, you know, a lot of them focus on people that will talk to sociologists and therefore have a lot more to say about what, like, very large groups of white nerds who are mostly men and well-educated have to say about things and i think it's a way of erasing the history that like yeah this field wasn't diverse at first but there was more than just this dominant group and attempting to claim there was only this group creates the idea that like somehow progressive critique magically creates new communities you know um or or the reverse is true as well Right, yeah, exactly. But our community is the reason for progressive discourse. Yeah, Mm. yeah, exactly. Thank you. That is an important part to nail on that. Um, Because it's the bit that I guess disappoints me a bit is like, you know, Wittgenstein's language games, let's just jump into pretension. Or like, you know, um, talking about like the development of terminology within gaming spheres. Because like, you know the forge inherited some of its terminology talking about that, like a structural linguistics uh, perspective or uh, like 
you know, discourse analysis perspective, which is this person's background, I think is more interesting because like I'm aware of sort of D&D's pivot from like scrappy underdog, but also kind of like nerd men culture to like hated corporate oppressor. But like even those transformations and the fact that 4E very clearly read The Forge in many ways and Mike Merles is a product of The Forge, um, you know. And name dropped in this book. Name, yeah. yeah, name dropped in this book. Oh, yeah. You know, like these things somehow don't merit the sort of attention that's given to like a couple of dismissive academics being like, our games aren't, my teenage son says so, but let me be clear, my teenage son just needs to clean his room. Like, that's just fucking boring. I don't need to read like that article and it's dim assessment. And like, you know, another thing that talks about like, you know, this tall nerd sure doesn't look like a life elf. And it's like, man, like that sort of stuff just feels, it feels mean spirited. Yeah, it does. Jared, what do you think? You've been, you've been, uh, Wittgenstein's been, hmm. been mentioned, Jared. <laughs> That's true. I've been summoned, but I'm, I'm mostly in agreement here. I, um, I don't know if I have much to, to contribute, but I was, I was pretty disappointed in the general sort of tone of it. And I am skeptical of the utility of the vast majority, at least of this chapter up to like the internet part. Yeah, that's yeah, let's hop to the internet. That's... I'm sorry for my long aside. We can edit it out. Don't worry. No, no, no. I think it's relevant. Yeah, I and you know, like it does bring up the point. Like, I, the reason why I was going to the internet side was I didn't realize until you pointed it out that this is actually a discursive way of saying, "Hey, it wasn't that evolved until we were almost like a culminating point of the evolution at that point." You know. Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one yeah. one that maybe thing I could say about it, and this is I think similar to what you're saying, is it's very. This reads like reading pre-forge RPG history through the lens of the forge, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's very split up into, like there's one section I I obviously can't find it now, but there's one section where he like lays out three games that are obviously they fit really solidly into GNS. <laughs> oh, you know, I and it's like, that. God damn it, where is it? Um, so it's, but that that's not really for the games he's talking about there. That's not something like that's not an idea that existed. Um, so I mean, it makes sense insofar as that particular element of Forge theory is meant to explain what exists. Um, but sort of, I don't know it, it, that the book hasn't handled that yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so to sort of sort of pack it in there feels like some kind of ideological smuggling, if <laughs> if you get me. Yeah, I mean, again, this is an ideological safe apparatus. It doesn't have to declare its ideology in order for you to consume the ideology and make it part of you. Mm-hmm. It's subversive that way. Be careful what you consume; you become it. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's. Do you think we can go into this part on RPG theory on the internet? You two? Yeah, absolutely. I've yeah. I don't okay. need to talk about Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, uh, and scene, trying to be kind to ourselves. Okay, so here we go. All right, so basically RPG theory on the internet, it starts off by like, oh my goodness. um, The Genie Computer Networks Gaming Roundtable, the online, like, 
basically it's it's I look at it and think like oh the good old horrible days but I think what becomes most pertinent is when we start looking at we start looking at RPG uh, web-based discussions in forums such as rpg.net the gaming outpost and the forge um, coming from groups from Usenet of which the one that they were talking about the most is the fantasy role-playing um uh, F, uh, sorry, from the Usenet group, rec.games.frp. And this was, and the one that is most directly relevant to the Forge, to, oh my gosh, I, I can't English this morning, is um, <laughs> basically this one. This was rec, I'll to quote, this was rec.games.frp.advocacy, in parentheses, RGFA, which was established in 1992, which basically was something that started off as, I guess, a series of, like, you know, forums again and where people could chat and which then became uh, collected by one member into a FAQ. And then... What I love about... What I love about RGFA, just to sort of interject, is he goes to great lengths to explain, and I think this is great, that, like, the advocacy sub use net like the advocacy little small part of it was intended to be a place for people to go argue with each other and just be shitty at each other um and then it turned over time into the place where people actually had real discussions which i think is fascinating well especially as we go as we go into later discussions of sort of the toxic uh discursive practices of the forge i think that's like super relevant okay There's actually a bit from 1985 uh, in this book that I found very relevant um, of this was one surprising finding in an ongoing research project by Dr. Keisler and colleagues at Carnegie Mellon University. They found that people uh, are more prone to emotional outbursts, swearing, name calling, insults when talking by computer than in person. This phenomenon called flaming by computer buffs was observed in business offices as well as experimental settings. And this is what I highlighted, but I think it's also an interesting background to all of this. They had theorized that computers would purify and facilitate group decisions by reducing human interaction. What happened, Dr. Kisley said, is that the same people turned into tigers on computers. <laughs> um, I, I feel like I kind of could just throw that quote at most arguments on the internet, but like... Also, it feels relevant to forming a structured society that, like, acknowledges certain discursive practices as a way of discussing is that, like, this is also a thing that we attempted in 1985 and it didn't quite work out. How'd it work out? Um, Sorry. (laughs) Disastrously. Yeah. Well, this is when I think, well, I guess looking at the birthplace of the Forge or basically what forged the Forge was this is the whole notion that, okay, by 1997, although the conversation there had been described as too rarefied for many Usenet users and too abusive for others from Mason 2001, page 11, the participants at RGFA had developed what a contributor Mary Cooner labeled the threefold model of RPG play. The RGFA's taxonomy of playstyles divided play preferences into orientations towards RPGs as dramatist, producing a satisfying story, gamist, Con, uh, constituting a fair challenge to players or simulationists, sustaining an internally consistent and coherent diegetic game world oriented around what would really happen, in quotes. 
Uh, Kim reviews the RGFA model, explaining that it represents three approaches to logical decision-making within or about the game, rather than goals or rewards. As Game Master, do you make what the Paul that is most fair, most realistic, or most dramatically interesting? As a player, do you make the choice that demonstrates skill that best fits your character or that best enhances the storyline? Again, from Kim, 2012, page 43. So here it is. So whoever you are, uh, Mary Cooner, you have you gave this language to you, which then the form seemingly adopted and then codified into its own forms. The yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. first. Um, it's interesting that because um, I didn't realize that the threefold model predated the forge, so that was a fun sort of tidbit for me personally. Um, but it's interesting to me how that um, and it he deals with this. Somewhere, I, I wrote down page 22, but it's interesting to see how that idea gets transformed as you move into the forge, specifically how Ron Edwards builds that out into something um, slightly different. So it's it seems to me, and I think the book says this pretty explicitly, that in RGFA terms, um, the threefold model was describing a very on-the-ground set of concerns. You know, this is like, uh, in the moment-to-moment decision-making of play, one might default to one of these three sort of general categories of decision-making. Um, whereas Edwards, specifically in, I think it's System Does Matter, his, his uh, article, System Does Matter, extrapolates that out into like looking at what a game does, which is a very different concern well, one um, talks about how to play. Another one talks into deliberate design. Like well, it's, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's, I, I think that's like, for me, a really emblematic change that the Forge introduced to the kinds of theory that were happening at the moment. Um, okay. this, this sort of extrapolation upward into the sort of design space and the, and the primacy of the designer. I'm sorry, I keep on interrupting. Uh, Fiona, did you want to say something? Oh, just... You know, it popped out to me again when I was scrolling down, but uh, on page 21, since we've invoked system does matter, which means that we have to invite Ron Edwards someday. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that um, the mention of Edwards and system does matter immediately segues into whose rules serve to create a strong and thoughtful moral center for the game, which is interesting to me because trying to be kind, I don't think that this is intentional, but trying to be an honest academic, you know, slippages mean something since this person invoked Freud. So I'm allowed to talk about Freudian slips, which is not just when you wear a negligee that says daddy, but in fact, when, you know, you accidentally say something and mean something else is that like, you know, Dragon Lance is presented as being offered on the grounds that like D&D was surveyed and they were found to have insufficient dragons. And in a way, there's this celebration of like moral centering, which as a former ethicist is interesting because Dragon Lance is utterly amoral from like any standard that I can imagine other than like whatever world like Tracy Hickman exists in where it's like, look. I'm just going to kill children in front of your characters that you can't prevent to tell you that these people are bad and you are allowed to kill them in any way that you want. Like it's like an anti Sophie's choice because Mm. I'm not required to be kind to Hickman because he compared the publication of the book of vile darkness to nine 11. So um, 
you know. Oh boy. Hickman just is a hot take before there was even Twitter. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm having a nightmare thought right now because of you. <laughs> I took a couple yeah. editables before this, so I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> no, you're doing great. You're making more sense than me, that's for sure. Look, I'm talking yeah. about two things that I understand. They're ethics and Dragonlance. And let me tell you, okay. I have thoughts about the presentation of natives in Dragonlance that could last for an excruciating amount of time. Oh my god, let's not even get there. Um, it, it leads us to, yeah. But this is the part of the book where um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean uh, into Jared's knowledge. Because, Jared, how do you feel about this statement? System does matter. <laughs> Um, my, my feelings on that, and this is one of those things I get asked a lot and people are often surprised by my response. Um, my answer to that is obviously system matters, but I think saying that is like bringing with it a lot of baggage that I disagree with, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, it, there's a, and this is, this gets back to what I was sort of talking about a moment ago where, um, this sort of change in attitude toward, toward the designer and away from the player that I'm pointing to with the sort of introduction of GNS is the kind of thing you get when you get into like system matters theory, the way the forge and sort of post forge proponents do it. Right. It's, it's this idea that the, the game text somehow produces the, the game, the play of the game. And there's an illusion of the player I, I think, at least. Um, and so you end up in these really sort of strange circumstances where you're, where you're putting forward that a game can somehow uh, produce or uh, coerce ethical behavior or unethical behavior out of human beings. And I find that a really under, uh, like an under-defended thesis everywhere I've ever seen it. Like that's a really difficult thing to justify. Um, and I think that's really central to what, at least to my understanding of what the forge is doing. And it seems to be the direction this book is going as well. If, if, if you get me. Okay. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like you are okay with system. You're not okay with the idea that system overrides agency. A hundred percent. Yeah. System system absolutely does matter. Um, for like a whole variety of reasons. Um, but I don't think it matters because it like, I, because players don't have agency, you know what I mean? Like that, or, or because it's able to limit a player's agency, like without their assent, that seems very strange to me um, as a claim. Well, do people honestly play games purely? That's my, I think that's the thing with the, with the question. Like when you say system does matter, it presumes this, that whatever system you're given, people will play it purely and to the letter, and if not to the spirit of the, of the text, to what the text actually gives. Yeah. I think I mean, most games, like the most RPGs, it's completely impossible to play it, quote unquote, by the rules 100%. You know what I mean? Because they're either incomplete or incoherent or both, by, by definition. Um, but I think like maybe what I'm pointing to here is there's a, there's a sort of built in assumption, um, in the 
classically construed system matters discourse that games exist somehow ontologically separate from players. Like they, there, there is game and there are players and these two things interact. And I think that's, that leads you to a bunch of very strange places. Whereas I would be more prone to say like, there is a game text that is not a game. And there are players who wield a game text in order to produce a game. Right. And I think that for me, that ends up being much more, coherent oh my god i'm sorry i'm dying i i have <laughs> my brain stopped at ontology i'm like oh, I'm, oh, I'm gonna have the chomsky <laughs> debate of system in which the word system is actually never said and becomes like a deridian ghost that just haunts the entire conversation where people are like but where's the beef regarding system but like i do think that like the the moral roboting of some of this is what's weird to me right like I don't understand how you can have ethics without agency, and I don't understand how the concept of rules as a morality or rules as expressing morality is somehow, like, this magical urtext that therefore gives moral weight to things. Um, And I think it, like, gets down to, like, even the fact that, like, on why D&D is a broken game is that if you delete the part where Gary Gygax says you have to follow the rules and just keep rule zero you're doing fine it's just that people believe a speaker uh elocuting matters and you know like get caught up in this idea that like you have to follow these rules well rather these rules are heuristics for playing a game with people and the content of that game is people dependent like we're entering peak (laughs) potential i love it the word heuristic ontology (laughs) i'm like this is why i love the both of you i can barely keep up yo no so here's like an easy example because i think it gets to the heart of this and it's a real world example so we're also solving a moral issue and therefore i'm doing my previous job right so regarding system matters here's a thought experiment that's actually a real case um So Rand Corporation is the people that are game theorists that developed the United States nuclear strategy. Um, Basically, these men went into an office all day and crunched calculus to calculate death yields with, like, nuclear arsenal setups exchanging with each other all day and, like, trying to figure out what a tolerable number of mega deaths is, a measure they had to invent because, like, to get rid of some precise math, it's just easier to measure deaths in millions. Um, So... They one time realized that all of these dudes who are weird engineers who wanted to study this have been doing this forever and have developed, like, very developed etiquette around nuclear exchange to the point that they, like, you know, have a Queen's Gambit nuclear, uh, like, thing like this is chess. Um, they had their secretaries play at least, you know, um, you know, this is an apocryphal story. And the problem was their secretaries wouldn't nuclear exchange regardless of what you did to them. Like, you could invade other countries, you could, you know, commit war crimes, they would just be like, I don't think that nuclear arms are an acceptable solution to this. So the question is, did system matter? Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, I think I want to I want to touch on something that you said, sort of in passing, Fiona. um, Because I, again, I think it gets at like something really, really central here. This idea that ethics cannot exist separate from agency. And I think that is like the central tension of, at least of my understanding of the forge conception of system matters, right? There's this, this idea that system 
produces, I keep wanting to use the word coerces, but that's so like, so much baggage. And so it, it denotates or connotates poorly, but like there's this, this idea that system produces behavior or play or whatever it is, and that it can produce ethical play or it can produce unethical play when like that, removing the human element from that, of that from, for, for me is really like misguided and completely undermines the whole project. It's okay. It's for me, what hap- what's happening here is I think the forge is trying to, Oh God, now I'm being pretentious. Um, the forge is trying to engage in the experiment of a phenomenology of what is a game. Mm. And so what it's trying to do, it's trying to uh, bracket the concept of game and detach it from all sorts of other considerations. For example, human interest in play and just looks at what can be the essence of gaming. And it's tried to do that. And in doing so, it produces, you know, it, it hangs to the threefold model to explain that. And then it adds in a little notion of an idea of if a game is this, and therefore, in essence, it is a system. And that is why systems need to behave in particular ways in order for them to be successful games. And and uh, that, I think, is... Um, I mean, did you did we look at the original idea, the original article of System Does Matter by John Edwards? It's actually quite short. And yeah, I've, I've read it a few times in, in my day. Yeah, and I read I remember... Nuking the Apple Cart, which I like a lot more. Trying to be kind, that if we mm-hmm. did this episode about <clears throat> nuking the Apple Cart, I would be much kinder. Okay, so maybe we can talk about those two things first. So first, on System Does Matter, what does that first really mean? Basically, Edwards goes on and says, okay, uh, it is these three things, basically GNS, right? Mm. And uh, you can't, the big thesis there is you can't mix the three. Like D&D is a bad game because it tries to do more than being a, than being gamist, narrativist, or simulationist. It tries to be all three at once. That's why it's a bad game, right? That's yeah, basically... that's the central thesis of that, of that uh, article, yeah. Yeah, so it's 100%. very... Yeah, so it leans very deeply into the notion of design rather than into the notion of interpretation by a player. Because on the other end of a spectrum, I would imagine, depending on who you're playing D&D with, you can ask your players, This I think this goes back to the RGFA model, you can ask your players, are we going for something more gamist? Are we going for something more narrativist? Are we going for something more simulationist? And I would think I would posit, though I, I can't be sure if this is if this is uh, uh, true, is that the RGFA model will look at D and D and say, "Let's decide what kind of game we're going to play within this structure of rules." Vis-a-vis Edwards, which seems to say that no, the game in and of itself must declare its intent. What is it between these three things? Yeah, that's that's my reading of it as well, and I think, I, yeah, this is sort of what I I said very pretentiously a, a little while ago but it's it's um the the issue is for me that uh it seems very strange to like look at a game text which is basically a tool to get a job done and then make uh claims about the final product if that makes sense so like a, a player could look at at something like D or even something like troll baby or sorcerer or one of edward's games and I think it's completely reasonable to say that a person could play those games uh, with a gamist, a narrativist, or a simulationist bent. 
Now, some of those might be harder than others, right? It might be more frustrating for them, but that's only because Edwards has kind of built in this judgment about what should happen, <laughs> like into the structure of the game. And it seems very strange to me to make the claim that a what's basically a tool that could be used very generally or very broadly for, uh, you know, at, at the at the leisure, at the behest of the players, they could use it however they wanted. Um, it seems very strange to me to call that bad, <laughs> like it would capital B terrible bad. Yeah. When that is, it's just like, that seems perfectly logical. And maybe at the most conservative, just another mode. I have a question. Historically, hmm. does this article then lead into the creation of the forge? Basically. The system does matter article. Yeah. Is that, that's pre forge, right? Uh, it might be. I think it's certainly it's, early forge if it's not pre-forge. Yeah. So this is where uh, content warning: certain people working for certain um, companies will be mentioned to the name of Merle's. Where you know, like uh, here, Edward's original take on the creative priorities that drive play first appeared in July '99 at an essay at the Gaming Outpost, so not at the Forge. A now all but vanished gaming-related website that opened earlier that year. When I found the site, Ron Edwards recalled in early 2002, it was a lot like the Forges now, a few articles, a few reviews, and a spunky forum. According to Ed Healy, who would later participate in the creation of the Forge, the gaming outpost forums had the vibe of a private club, not in an exclusionary way, but just like dudes hanging out and talking, a sort of town square where many like him were also interested in talking about game design. This is from a phone interview with Ed Healy. Jared Sorensen, whose games would influence other games at the Forge, remembers the gaming outpost as this huge thing in the late 1990s where he met a whole rogues gallery, and here we go, including Mike Merles, as well as future Forge founders Ron Edwards and Clinton Nixon and game designer John Wick, with whom he would later become publishing partners. It was pre-Forge Forge. It was people going, okay, have this idea, and then just doing it. And people going, yeah, cool, continue. Or, hey, have you tried this? Or, hey, I did something similar. And then I was just kind of like, oh, my God. If you're telling me that the, that like, you know, like the proto-matter of the Forge involves a few of the, these names, I mean, I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> I'm perfect. Like I, I. It's only recently that I discovered, or not discovered, but I'd heard of the issues with Mike Merles um, as a person rather than as a designer. But then I saw John Wick, who I personally find fairly problematic in his inventions, like Legend of the Five Rings. So I was just like, uh, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. That's me trying to be kind here. That's personal bias, and that has nothing to do with what other. If, if it's you know, super how real, they <laughs> like I, I, that's that's very very real though. I mean, uh, right? So, like, if this is the case, we're if this chapter is supposed to be all about situating the forge in this history, I what I find some what I take some issue with is that it doesn't talk about the character of the people who made the forge. And I think that's a you know like 
it talks about it's it's, it's communication theory, yes, <laughs> and like how things were made, but it doesn't talk about the characters of those involved. And I think that's a big thing to not really mention in in one's text. Well, I think it gets to one of the one of the things with how Forge sort of discourse positions itself around certain issues, right? Is by saying that morality is in the rules, like often there's a concept that if you contain cultural information people will use it appropriately and you know i think that that gets into a lot of things that i'm ill-equipped to really break apart with like orientalism of in legend of five rings because like it's a less surface treatment than say like someone who's watched a samurai film trying to write about a country they've never been to but like it still is very much about otherness or the concept of this being different rather than like a very sort of like typical human expression in a different, different context, you know, like where there's the, the weird argument you could make that like the fact that everyone basically has the same six stats in D and D makes like all humans kind of in a weird way, non different, like, the only differences are skill sets and languages, you know, which is its own sort of maybe stupid humanitarianism or whatever. But like, and this has drifted very off course, but like, I think that that's maybe one of the problems with how that discourse worked in uh, proving or an outline from it. Because like, if you think that like simulationism is a thing that like is about trying to emulate things you end up believing that like culture is a thing that just exists as a couple of tacked on rules and like you maybe produce a many headed hydra of problems. Yeah. I mean, this is where we go into the whole notion of like a focus on GNS. So I guess that article of system does matter by Edwards and for whoever he was surrounded with, it then coalesces into this whole notion of of like how games should be. And then we enter it. So that I think is like the structural, sorry, that is like the theoretical underpinnings that are leading to it. But then Fiona, you said you'd read Nuking the Apple Cart. And Nuking the Apple Cart talks more about a structural relationship. So maybe you'll want to go into that, right? Yeah, because, right, I think that we've had a long and... I'm not going to say unearned negative, but we have maybe emphasized the negative for making critical points. And I'd like to emphasize some positives. So here's, here's the thing about Ron Edwards is I think that like one of the most essential things he ever did was talk about labor issues by talking about nuking the apple cart, even though he positioned it as press versus press, but where he pointed out that like, there's ways that you can cut your costs of production in order to get yourself to a minimum viable product that, in an era where itch.io does not exist, where drive through RPG for all of its problems does not exist, where, um, you know, print on demand on like, you know, small scale publishing for zines is like not really a thing because zines are mostly handmade, you know, like it kind of created an idea of try to be reasonable in your expectations, make a game as a final product and don't make a game to endlessly iterate new things um because 
that don't really serve the core game. And, you know, if you look at the market of not only from a perspective of customers, but from a perspective of business, what happened with White Wolf with its constant production of more lore, you know, like I think one of the reasons that the Forge does persist is that that was a very prescient critique. Um, and I think also saying that the models of success that are presented by corporations are not the only model of success that exists is something that's very dear to me as someone that believes strongly in DIY things. And, you know, the music equivalent is, you know, our band can be your life when you realize that, like, all you need to make a band is the willingness to make a fool of yourself in public. All you need to make an RPG is a willingness to make a fool of yourself on the internet, and the internet doesn't even know your home address. And, you know, I think that that's amazing, and I love amateurism, and I think that that article is an important article. So there's probably the most sincere things I'll say on this episode, and you should delete all of that. <laughs> no, I agree with that completely. Um, I'm I'm notoriously a big fan of the way The Forge handled itself on the publishing front. Um, and I and, uh, the new Apple cart is sort of the genesis of that attitude, I think. So no, nothing but good things to say on that front. Yeah. I mean, like, so you see, again, this is where the dichotomy of the Forge shows itself. In terms of actual, it's a difference between content and product. I agree with the Forge in terms of how to handle product, which is now mm. that you have your work, how do we go about sharing it? What is the aim of having a work? And I'm kind of like, that is, for me, a very positive thing. Um, but then it com- when it comes to content, when it starts saying that this should be the theoretical thing, that it's inside your product, that's where we get a little bit like, mm, are we sure about that? Are mm. we? Are we? Well, the chapter almost ends with this. And uh, I guess, in a way, it tries to credit Edwards. I don't know if this is fair or not, because I'm, have, I'm no historian, no game historian with the term the independent game the indie game because edwards does say in nuking the apple cart now for the other side of things say look at sorcerer sorcerer is an independent role-playing game that is it's owned marketed distributed and so forth by me its designer no one gets a penny from its sales but me and the credit card web people and no one buys it unless they really want to there's no associated card game series of novels board game or miniature Advertising is limited to reviews, trading information on the internet, and occasional flyers at the convention. You get it from place to place with no markup between production and consumer. And I'm like, you know what? In a way, that's very much our itch.io situation to some extent, drive through RPG, and so on and so forth. But it's interesting because you see a number of indies, um, you know, by the power of KS and collaboration offering far more than just the book. But I think it's an interesting place to be right now. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that is why I'm a materialist puts on her nerd steampunk goggles to talk about fucking Marxism, um, you know, is I think the means of production have changed right? Like, I think logistics and shipping have changed. I think the international marketplace has changed. I think also, like, the fact that people that like handcrafted things um, can appreciate handcrafted things where you pay in certain ways for handcrafting. That is, like, 
if you look at tarot cards, like there's a fairly in, like influential group of people that make like extremely high end and beautiful things, and there's also people who make like very homemade things that are beautiful in a different way and like both of those often end up being rare and worth a lot of money on a secondary market so like you know i think that maybe the emphasis on like a dogma 95 style zine is not always the right thing but like i think um it it yeah like you know this shifting era kind of needs its own new king of the apple cart where we cast the money changers out of the temple and talk about you know who's indian who's not and drop loyalty lists and i am making a joke i realize i don't have a tone of voice i realize that like it's not clear when i'm being sarcastic that last bit was me being sarcastic for once trying to be kind i thought it was funny <laughs> yeah i think this yeah. side of the forge this like don't be a corporation side of the forge is spectacular and sort of perennial you know what i mean i feel like especially as um, people sort of on our level of capital, say, um, have more access to resources like Kickstarter and like Itch and like Mixam and those kinds of things. I think there's going to be an increasing sort of, I don't know, tendency toward behaving like a corporation. And I think that has its own set of pitfalls as you move in that direction. But yeah, but um, that's, also, that's also structural though. I mean, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, like, who was the person who was saying it? Where uh, there was one Kickstarter group where they had to make an LLC because if they did not, then they would have been blitzed out of out of even making the product because of taxes. So they're not trying to be corporate people; they're just trying to hold on to the to the funds in a legal and ethical way. But oh, then, sure, and I, sh- I should clarify. Yeah, yeah, I definitely don't mean like don't do due diligence on the business side of things. Like that is important and good and everyone needs to be able to do that. But I think you, you get into trouble when you start uh, looking at certain aspects of business. I like this article's point specifically to advertising. I think that's a pretty good, you know, uh, example that's still relevant. It's like, we don't have access to the kinds of advertising avenues that say a Watsi does. Um, and when you start sort of using that mindset, it's just going to go poorly um, both oh. like practically and emotionally, if that makes sense. It does, and I just have a very hot take, which I will not share here because we are trying to be kind. <laughs> and hot takes are like potatoes when they're hot. You just try to throw it at someone else and burn them as they try to hold it. So let's not do that. Um, I think this is a natural conclusion, though. And speaking of conclusions, we're looking at... <laughs> this This guy is very fond of his like references, isn't he? Because the conclusion, kindling the forge... Oh, boy. Academic puns. I swear. You know, I'm gonna try and end on a kind note and say, I think that, like, I think this chapter accomplished what it was trying to do in terms of structure. I just have questions about its structure. Um, Mm. Also, after we finish this book, I actually want to suggest we read the Laycock one because it fucking rules, and it's about the Satanic Panic and like games as religion. But I have a physical copy. I'm into that. I've never even heard of it. It has the worst cover. Let me be clear. Like, I want to <laughs> go ask an academic if I can buy the rights from his book to get them to Exalted Funeral to get like don't record this bit to like you know get like a good cover on this because it's like 
uh, a kind of cartoonish drawing of Satan and like people and like it just looks kind of goofy and like I don't I I don't know quite what the design goal was there and I also realize academic presses don't really hire a lot of people to do like cover art design oh. but like there's stuff about like correspondence society RPGs in Kansas where like teenage children pretended to be like Martian princes and princesses and also had a war game to resolve their like court disputes and that had like 30,000 players at one point or 3,000 or something it was ridiculous and weird that sounds great why don't we do that that's what like I try to do with games at this point is I'm like look just have more excuses to do weird ritualistic behavior with your friends (laughs) 